I'm Jorge Fascinetti, and you are listening to an exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. Hi, everyone. November 1 is Acromegaly Day, and people touched by Acromegaly and advocacy organizations all over the world are marking the day with many awareness initiatives. Awareness of acromegaly is critical because of the importance of early diagnosis for patients' quality of life. Early detection is one of the most important issues when it comes to acromegaly, and it's one of the reasons why Dr. Blevins and I founded Pituitary World News. I asked Dr. Blevins what he thought about acromegaly day this year and to join me in a discussion about it. He has been reflected on the developments in the field over the past three decades, and we thought this would be a perfect time for a podcast on the subject. So we decided to record our chat. I should mention that over the last six years, well, almost seven now, since Pituitary World News founding, we have produced hundreds of articles and podcasts on the subject of acromegaly, and we invite you to go to the site at pituitaryworldnews.org to search for the content. So without any further delay, I want to welcome Dr. Blevins to this podcast. And for those of you who don't know him, Dr. Blevins is a pituitary neuroendocrinologist. And besides being the uh, Pituitary World News uh, co-founder, he is also the medical director at the California Center for Pituitary Disorders at the University of California, San Francisco, and professor of clinical medicine and clinical neurological surgery, and considered one of the leading experts in pituitary disease. So welcome, Dr. Blevins. It's great to be here uh, to chat with you about this very important subject. Thank you, Jorge. It's a pleasure to join you, especially on this occasion, uh, in recognition of acromegaly awareness. Thank you, Dr. Blevins. It's great to be here as well. As I mentioned in our introduction, our mission here at Pituitary World News is to generate and amplify the conversation about pituitary disease and provide a platform for information and education to increase awareness of all pituitary diseases. But since it's Acromegaly Day, we wanted to dedicate this podcast to this particular disease. So uh, let me start by asking you, when did this all start for you? Uh, tell us about the first patient you uh, remember seeing with acromegaly. I first encountered a patient with acromegaly during my internal medicine residency at the University of Alabama Hospitals in Birmingham, Alabama. The patient uh, had a pituitary adenoma, and he also had diabetes mellitus, hypertension, and enlarged hands. The endocrinology attending had suggested that I work him up for acromegaly. At the time, I didn't know what that entailed, uh, so he told me to perform an oral glucose tolerance test and check a somatomedin C level. About a week later, the test results came back and were abnormal, so we diagnosed him with acromegaly and sent him to the neurosurgeons, and I never saw him again because I was rotating on a particular service at the time and uh, the patient's care was delivered on another service. He came back to the endocrinology clinics, so it was lost to follow-up to me. In that era, all we could do for patients with acromegaly was to perform transphenoidal surgery, 
many patients also received radiotherapy, whether it was thought their tumor was completely removed or not. Uh, and then uh, for those patients who had residual disease, uh, we could give dopamine agonist drugs that worked in about uh, 15% of uh, all cases. Well, I imagine it's uh, fascinating to look uh, back since you started your career. Uh, if you would, why don't you summarize the different categories or uh, types of things that have changed in this field since the last uh, since that last first patient at the University of Alabama Hospitals? Well, there have been a number of advances in several different arenas, including uh, diagnostic testing, imaging procedures, the performance of surgery and radiotherapy, our understanding of the tumor subtypes and the genetics behind such, and also there have been tremendous advances in medical therapy. As a result, acromegaly doesn't seem to be the same disease process that it was when I was in training. Uh, at that time, we hardly could control half the patients with the disease, probably less than half when you count recurrence rates. Uh, but in this day and age, I think we can get control of most patients who have this particular disorder. Uh, that is remarkable. Uh, let's highlight a few of those categories you mentioned and uh, let's discuss them in details. Uh, so why don't we start with pituitary imaging? I would gather the advancements uh, with that technology have been quite amazing, no? At the time I saw that first patient, MRI was just hitting the scene in, uh, for routine clinical use in hospitals and outpatient clinics. The early MRI studies were very crude. They were certainly better than CT scans that were uh, preceding them. Uh, and we, we thought the anatomy was remarkable. Uh, since that time, there have been advances in the strengths of the magnet, uh, the method of contrast administration, and also uh, the way sequences are obtained such that we can get very high resolution and detail uh, of the anatomy of the hypothalamic pituitary unit and know precisely what's going on with uh, patients who have pituitary tumors producing a growth hormone causing the clinical syndrome of acromegaly. Oh, yes. It's been really interesting for me since my acromegaly diagnosis in 2010 to be exposed and to learn more about MRIs and how the technology has evolved over the years. It's truly fascinating. Uh, it is always uh, interesting for me to see uh, how you and your colleagues interpret and recognize what is going on in an MRI uh, when I attend some of the uh, continuing medical education conferences uh, that you do at UCSF. How about uh, diagnostic uh, testing? Uh, what is going on in that area? Well, certainly the assays for growth hormone in IGF-1 have greatly improved. We now understand the dynamics of growth hormone secretion very well, the growth hormone receptor and its action to uh, result in uh, production of IGF-1, uh, we understand more about the physiology of growth hormone and IGF-1 and what they do to different body tissues. All of this sets the stage for um, understanding who has a disease and who hasn't. Uh, the diagnostic cutoffs have changed. It used to be thought that, uh, and this was with some of the older growth hormone assays, but that if you suppressed growth hormone under 2, you were normal. Uh, when the assays improved, we considered suppression under one to be normal, but now we know that with the best assays, suppressing growth hormone to less than 0 
is uh, the cutoff to say someone's normal if they're under that or abnormal if they're above that. IGF-1 assays are much better. Uh, we used to check what was known as a somatomedin C, but those assays have changed, and now with the uh, uh, gas chromatography and mass spectroscopy, we can fairly well measure IGF-1 and know that we're actually looking at the amount of that molecule uh, and its concentration in the bloodstream. We also have incorporated mortality data uh, from several studies and understand what sorts of growth hormone and IGF-1 cutoffs we should aim for to determine whether a patient's actually been rendered disease-free from surgery uh, and also to, to have our targets for medical therapy uh, laid out in front of us to decide how aggressive we want to do with medical treatment for our patients. The oral glucose suppression test that I'd mentioned before, we don't do that as much now because if a patient has a pituitary adenoma and an elevated IGF-1 and a classic uh, physical appearance, we tend not to need any additional information. Hmm, interesting. Uh, you mentioned that the cutoff for growth hormone and IGF-1 have changed. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? When I was training in endocrinology at Johns Hopkins, uh, the, the numbers that I recall is that after surgery, we wanted to see a growth hormone less than five to consider the surgical procedure successful. What we noticed, however, was that a number of patients with acromegaly still had residual tumor on their MRI, and their growth hormone might be four or 4.2 or 3.5, but they still had active disease, and many of them had symptoms of active acromegaly, including sweating, headaches, uh, continued soft tissue swelling, etc. cetera. Uh, so we learned that, um, I guess one way to put it is that uh, we, we had a bar that the, that the neurosurgeons had to jump over to have uh, performed a successful operation, and now they have to pole vault uh, because our cutoffs are more stringent. The bar is set higher because we've incorporated that mortality data. And now, for example, we look for an IGF-1 that's normal and a growth hormone that's less than 1 and a glucose-suppressed growth hormone of less than 0 0.4. So those are certainly advances in our approach to interpreting laboratory data in the field of uh, acromegaly at this time. Um, earlier in the podcast introduction, you mentioned tumor subtypes and genetics, uh, which is really another fascinating subject. Uh, and as you know, we have met uh, several times with Dr. Marta Korbanitz from St. Bart's in the United Kingdom and have highlighted the work that she's doing with uh, FIPA genes. FIPA uh, meaning familial isolated pituitary adenomas and specifically the AIP mutation, which is uh, really, as I was saying, fascinating work. I would encourage our listeners to go to Pituitary World News and read some of that material. It's really well worth the time. Uh, but from our perspective, um, and limited knowledge, obviously, uh, there has been, it seems like there has been some tremendous inroads in our understanding of the genetics of acromegaly, but it seems that there's also a lot of work to be done in this area. Uh, what else do we know about these tumors in the last 30 years? Well, about 30 or more years ago, it was first determined that an, a proportion of patients with acromegaly actually have a GSP mutation that uh, seemed to confer function and, and we thought maybe has some role to play in tumorogenesis as well. 
We do know that some patients with multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1 will develop uh, acromegaly. And of course, the, the work of Marta Carbonitz uh, has uh, uh, showed us that the AIP gene mutation, and there are others that are related to that, uh, can cause familial acromegaly. Um, we know that uh, these tumors are a heterogeneous group of tumors. It's not just a tumor that has a growth hormone producing cell, uh, that uh, all, all the daughter cells came from one primitive cell. That's a, certainly a characteristic of tumors, but we now know that some of these tumors are plurihormonal. Some are acidophil stem cell adenomas that can also produce prolactin. The mammosomatotroph adenomas seem to be cells that can produce prolactin and growth hormone. There are certainly pure growth hormone secreting uh, cells in some tumors, and then some tumors actually secrete TSH, prolactin, and growth hormone. And we've seen a couple of what we're calling fusion tumors of late, tumors that are gonadotroph adenoma-like and also growth hormone-like at the same time. So these are indeed a heterogeneous group of tumors, different cell types. And uh, in my opinion, some of these tumor types are more aggressive than others. So when we know the cell type or the tumor type, we can then arrange our follow-up and sometimes be more aggressive with subsequent treatment for those patients who have the more aggressive or primitive cell types. Uh, your discussion really underlines the importance of histopathology and the advances in molecular biology and how they have indeed um, impacted the clinical practice of medicine. Uh, let's switch now real quickly uh, our discussion uh, to surgery and radiotherapy in terms of their advances and benefits for people with acromegaly. There's been a lot of press, if you will, uh, regarding the use of the endoscope uh, in uh, pituitary surgery. To me, a good surgeon can um, get good results regardless of the type of procedure, whether it be endonasal microscopic or, or endoscopic surgery. Uh, but the endoscope does allow uh, probably better resection for large invasive tumors. In regards to radiotherapy, 30 years ago, we mostly were doing conventional radiotherapy. Since then, uh, and, and really starting before then, but uh, hitting the clinical scene, we see stereotactic forms of radiotherapy that have been developed and applied to uh, patients with acromegaly, most commonly as gamma knife radiosurgery, which allows us to precisely target residual tumor tissue and avoid radiotherapy to the rest of the pituitary gland and also uh, other uh, parts of the brain that you would prefer not to irradiate. I think these therapeutic modalities are important in the management of patients with acromegaly and particularly those with residual disease, whether you're planning repeat surgery or gamma knife radiosurgery or conventional radiotherapy. We're in the process of uh, thinking about how to look at the selection of patients for one form of radiotherapy or another. Generally speaking, those patients who have widely invasive or large residual tumors or tumors that are close to the visual pathways are treated with conventional radiotherapy. And those patients who have smaller tumors are treated with gamma knife radiosurgery. We know the time course to normalization of IGF-1 uh, varies depending on tumor size and uh, therapy uh, subtype, whether it be gamma knife or conventional radiotherapy. 
And I'm interested in learning more about the differences uh, in the response rates and selection bias, etc., cetera, uh, in regards to that particular form of treatment. Let's talk about uh, medical therapy, which, as you know, is a subject near and dear to my heart since I'm on treatment for acromegaly due to residual tumor from my surgery in 2010. Uh, uh, I know there has been a tremendous amount of advances in the number of available therapies in the last 30 years, and I really can't imagine living in a world where the the dopamine agonist drugs were the only drugs available. Well, the truth of the matter is it's not just dopamine agonist drugs. It was just bromocryptine at the time. Uh, Cavergaline came on the scene probably in the mid-1990s, and we started using it in uh, patients with acromegaly at about that time, uh, knowing that it was going to be efficacious in a small number of patients, mostly those who also co-secreted prolactin, but uh, that's not an absolute requirement for a beneficial response to treatment with a dopamine agonist drug. The short-acting brand of somatostatin uh, started hitting the scene probably in the in the early 1990s, maybe in 1993, 1994, and that represented a marked advance in the field uh, to be able to use a drug of a different class that would actually inhibit growth hormone secretion by a pituitary tumor. As a result of the success of therapy in a significant number of patients, uh, Companies started developing long-acting injectable versions of this drug that could be taken anywhere from four to six weeks. And then in about 2003, uh, a growth hormone receptor antagonist became available to treat patients with uh, residual and recurrent acromegaly. A lot of studies have been done to determine whether you can pre-treat people, treat them in lieu of surgery, uh, and... uh, treat them after surgery. And I think that in the United States, we found that most of the time these drugs are used in patients who have residual disease or recurrent disease after initial surgery and or radiotherapy. There were a large number of ensuing studies over the next uh, decade or so that uh, showed the efficacy of these drugs, uh, both alone and in combination. A number of guidelines came out that recommended uh, when to use these drugs relative to one another uh, and where to position medical therapy uh, in the scheme of things with regards to surgery and radiotherapy. We really had a lot of information and uh, sharing of ideas and recommendations that came out in that period of time, but for, for about 15 years, there were no new drugs, um, and um, I, th- I think we need new drugs. Uh, recently, we've had uh, FDA approval of uh, a drug that can be taken orally, and there are other drugs and other molecules uh, with all sorts of different routes that are being evaluated today. So, Fortunately, research has continued in this particular field, and I'm excited that we'll have another phase of advances in medical management of patients with acromegaly, uh, perhaps over this next decade after about a 15-year drought of uh, no new drugs to treat to patients with uh, acromegaly. Well, this is certainly an exciting time with new research 
and drug development. We have been covering many of these new developments and potential new drugs on Pituitary World News. We should mention there is a section where you can find specific information and research and clinical trials for new drugs. And we encourage you to learn more about what's involved and participate whenever possible. This is an area where we're constantly adding new information, so please check it out. Well, Dr. Blevins, this has been a wonderful chat, full of great information as always. Uh, I'm struck by listening to you and how recent some of these developments are and how difficult it must have been for people with acromegaly 30 years ago. I can't, I can't imagine. that, uh, And this is, was really not too long ago. So thank you very much for your uh, perspective and for taking the time to share your knowledge with us. I agree, Jorge. Very exciting times, and I look forward to learning of these new developments and implementing them in the care of my patients with acromegaly as soon as we can get going with it. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to chat, and I look forward to our next uh, meeting. But before I go, let me say that uh, I'm grateful for all of those of you out there who have acromegaly and are teaching me new things. Uh, To all of you who are providers, whether you're a physician, a nurse, or a family member who care for uh, our patients with acromegaly, and to all of you who are in the medical field, whether it be medical device companies or pharmaceutical companies who are working diligently to advance our knowledge and understanding of the disease and provide treatment alternatives Uh, we're uh, ever so grateful. Keep up the hard work. Yes, indeed. Uh, Very well said. Thank you very much, Dr. Levitz. You have been listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. This podcast has been brought to you in part by a generous contribution from Camurus, a company dedicated to developing innovative and long-acting medicines for the treatment of severe chronic conditions. Thank you for listening.